You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. I know you're expecting to hear a McKinsey podcast, and you will in just a moment. I'm Sean Brown with McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, and I'd like to let you know about a new podcast series we've launched called Inside the Strategy Room. Every episode will tackle a key strategy issue in conversation with senior executives and McKinsey's leading thinkers. Our first episodes on topics including digital strategy, board diversity, and artificial intelligence are available now wherever you get your podcasts. Please check them out at Inside the Strategy Room and subscribe if you like what you hear. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Our guest today is in some ways the archetypal Silicon Valley mogul. Aaron Levy co-founded Box while still an undergraduate and left his studies behind to focus on building the cloud storage company. He talks fast, favours sneakers over highly polished Oxfords and now leads an organisation valued at more than $3 billion. And yet, at college, Aaron was a student of business not computer science. He's an avid reader of business books, thinks deeply about strategy and organisation, and as we'll hear, he's interested not only in the future of technology, but also in the future of management. So, without further ado, fasten your seatbelts for this conversation with Box CEO, Aaron Levy. So Aaron, thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks uh, for having me, really exciting. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you for people who might not know the company. Just give us give us the story. Where, where give us do us the right from the very beginning. What's the origin story and take us through where you are today? All right. So um, uh, we started Box in uh, 2005. What we uh, we were actually in college at the time. We were sophomores in college, and we had this idea that it should be really really easy to be able to share and access files from anywhere. And it was a very basic idea. We started the, this. Uh, we, we launched this product. Eventually. Um, we got really lucky, got some early uh, venture capital from Mark Cuban that actually compelled us to drop out of college. Um, so we dropped out of college, moved to Silicon Valley, and, um, and we decided that as we kind of um, thought about what we wanted to build as a company and as we wanted to scale the business, um, we decided to focus 100% on the enterprise market. And so really since 2007, we've been 100% focused on helping businesses be able to securely manage, share, collaborate, um, and organize their, their critical information in the cloud. So we help companies um, you know, manage everything from their financial documents, their media content, their marketing presentations, collaborate with ad agencies, collaborate with clients. Um, and we work now with 85,000 customers glo uh, globally, including about 70% of the Fortune 500. Employees now? We have about 1,900 uh, employees. Right, and revenue this year is. Um, so last year we did a little over five hundred million in revenue, and this year we've guided to about a little over six hundred million in revenue. So thank you for that. The obvious, the obvious follow-up question is: along that journey, what have you learned? Yeah. Scaling. Okay. Well, I guess number one, scaling a software company because that has special characteristics. Yep. But then maybe after that, just generalizable advice to people who are on this journey. Yeah, so uh, you know we've we've certainly learned a whole bunch of things not to do uh, over the years. So we've made made our share uh, fair share of mistakes. Um, you know, I think the 
the, the, the things that, that have worked incredibly well when we've done them uh, successfully are, you know, first and foremost, you have to have an incredibly long-term vision uh, for, for where you're going. There's so many things that veer you, that, that have the potential to veer you off course. And so if you are not really, really sure of what you're trying to do over the long run, like multi-year, you know, 10-plus-year vision, um, it is so easy to go off course. We were fortunate where very early on we, we had this vision, which was uh, we saw that everybody's uh, work style was going to be changing in the future. Every company was going to have to change the way they collaborated, the way they shared, uh, the way, the, the way they, they fundamentally ran their businesses. And that was going to lead people to having to use the cloud to work and manage their, their data. And so we were building an architecture and a strategy and a, and a technology that could sort of lead toward that sort of vision of the future. And so we got, yeah. But you guys were not afraid to pivot yeah. early on, right? So it's not like you locked in too early. No, we, we, we had a lot of flexibility early on and, um, and, and probably actually too much. So actually uh, in the first year and a half of the company, I would say every 48 hours we changed our business model. And we, we, like, we would literally, the way it would work is so was, we had four, four, four founders of the company, including myself, and, and, um, and what would happen is if you went to bed too early one night, you, you were at risk of waking up and the business model would have changed. And so there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of sort of early constant iterating, constant pivoting of the, of the business. And, um, and in fact, actually, that, that actually became a pretty core lesson um, and, and actually became one of our core values as a company. So we have a uh, we have seven core values that we really live by, and one of them is um, uh, take risks, fail fast, and get shit done. And the emphasis there being uh, fail fast. And right. so the moment that we we sort of get information that, that we feel like is that, that is going to be critical, we will make decisions rapidly on that. And that, that has sort of been built now into the culture of of building an organization where you're constantly iterating, you're constantly testing ideas. You have to make sure that they line up against the long-term vision, but you have to be nimble enough, enough you have to be agile enough um, as new information is coming in to be able to constantly be evolving and, and veering the, the company in, in just slightly new directions. Um, and that, that has stuck with us for a long time. We've made a lot of, there's a lot of near-death decisions um, and moments as a company where if we had gone a different you know, direction, uh, we'd be in a very different spot. And one of those was the fundamental business model of focusing on the enterprise. It feels like you guys, very successful as it turned out, decided to go for growth yep. and to double down on growth. And you wrote quite a, an interesting HBR piece about returns to scale. Mm -hmm. Do you just want to talk about, talk about that and the moments when you had to decide, like, do we double down on growth yeah. or actually do we start running the business for profitability and cash? Right. I think, tell, tell me if I'm wrong, I actually think you guys wrote a piece uh, called like Grow Fast or Die Slowly. Is that? Is that That's uh, it. Okay, good. Did I do a good plug just now? That was perfect. Great. Okay. And, um, and it's, it's completely true in, in, uh, in the software world where you have, uh, you know, in, in some cases you have strong network effects. In other cases, there's the, uh, um, you, you know, the economies of scale you get by building um, by building software is obviously massive. And so you want, uh, you, you, there's a massive premium, orders of magnitude premium on the companies that, that are number one or, or number two in their market relative to three, four, you know, five and, and so on. And so that means you really have to make sure you're, you're building for scale. And so the moment you believe that your product has, market, has product market fit and it's working for customers, you're pretty incentivized to growing as quickly as humanly possible. And I think we felt that moment in, probably 2009, 2010, where for the first time ever, large enterprises were actually saying, okay, we're actually fine with cloud. We think this is a more secure, a safer way to do our work. And uh, the moment that we started you know, seeing and experiencing that, and we now saw that there were a bunch of tailwinds 
that were driving our growth, things like mobile, cloud computing being adopted in the enterprise, we said, okay, we're gonna now bet the whole business on, on growing as quickly as possible. And that was when you know, like we, we raised a few hundred million dollars over the subsequent few years from there because we had to make sure we were building up the technology team, the sales force, the go-to-market engine to make sure we could reach every customer possible because we knew that this was a market that was going to be defined by the company that could have you know, 90% of the large enterprises on the planet using their technology versus, you know, if you only had 10 or 15% of the enterprises. Presumably to pursue that strategy, you need to be very aligned with your investors. Extremely, <laughs> yes. Because those, those are big bets. Did, did you need to reset with the original investors and say, okay, maybe you thought you were going to start seeing some, you know, cash right. positive? I feel bad for our early investors because I think from 2006 to 2012, I'm almost positive we pitched each subsequent investor on this is the round where we get to cash flow positive. And, and we, we genuinely thought that was what was gonna happen. And then what would happen is our growth rate would actually exceed our expectations or, or you just knew that, that with, with one more new investment, kind of, you know, kind of one more concentric circle of investment um, from where we were, we could grow even faster. And so then that, that led everybody to conclude, including early investors, that it was time to actually raise more capital, invest more in growth. I think what, where startups get this wrong a lot is, you know, the sequence that is so fundamental is you have to make sure the product is working and that customers want the product, and then you, and then you invest. And I think a lot of, a, a lot of uh, startups, founders, um, VCs think that somehow you can buy your way to that. And that you can, and you actually almost overfund your product development uh, to the point where you know you might spend you know ten, twenty, fifty, hundred million dollars just on building product, well before the market actually even is is interested in what you're you're creating, and that's where it's really risky. We were fortunate, you know, we started the company with fifteen thousand dollars, and uh, and so we we spent a total of fifteen thousand dollars and proved that people wanted what we were building. And then that was on the, more of the consumer space, but then it really only took a couple million more to prove that enterprises wanted what we had. And then it was from that point forward just scaling. Um, but I, I think it's, it's really dangerous to start to prematurely scale using venture capital if you haven't proved that, that your product both can scale, but then also the economics of the product actually makes sense at scale. I mean, I think the interesting question is to what extent is that really specific to software? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, internet, cloud, Businesses, you know, it sounds like quite dangerous generalizable advice to a company that's making and selling shoes. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, the massive caveat should be here is only take this advice if you have like a recurring revenue business where you're, you know, where each customer you acquire is likely going to be with you for a long time, and and you know, there's network effects. Certainly, you know, if you're if you're selling a product on a one-off basis, you know, no amount of, of scale is going to help you know, if you have bad unit economics. You're just now going to have bad unit economics at scale. scale. So, yeah. like yeah. the. Uh, um, you know, you, the, the, it's really hard to you know, make a profit if each product that you're selling is, is unprofitable. So, um, so uh, uh, it is pretty, pretty unique to software. Yeah, the other thing that strikes me is there's a big debate about uh, short-termism. Yep. And how providers of capital, they're too short-term. But you didn't show cash, you know, positive cash flow until how many years after founding? I mean, uh, It's too scary to talk about, but probably about 11 years. Right. And that's, yeah. that's really interesting. It shows, yeah. you know. Our most, our most cash flow positive months were like month one and, uh, you know, month 137 or something. So, right. Yeah. Right. But that's really interesting, isn't yeah. it? Actually, it shows, you know, if you can show a business model, that what, there is patient capital out there, but you've got to align, align the investors. Well, and, and it can be very scary at times because you can, if you're if you go off course for one or two quarters, then all of a sudden the whole model, yeah, I mean the whole model basically changes in some, in some fundamental ways. I mean when you are when you're burning cash, 
the model is very, very sensitive to what your, what your uh, assumptions are. And the moment those are wrong, and, and either in your growth is faster than you expected, so now you even need more cash, or the growth is not there, but you spent the money. In both of those scenarios, it's very dangerous. So, um, you know, we, we, we have been blessed by a, a very strong, you know, finance and, and, um, and, and uh, strategy planning function. Uh, but, uh, but without that, I think we'd be in a very different position. Right. Can we talk a little bit about uh, technology trends? I love this. You were sort of born on the right side of history with, with respect to cloud. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Then you got on the right side of history with mobile, yep. as I understand it. Yep. That was, you know, you saw that coming and you moved on it. Yeah. So what's coming next and how do you make sure that you're on the right side of history? What's the big thing? I think today's version of those are... Um, you know, how are you or how is any company thinking about AI and machine learning? Yeah. And one of, the, one of the really important things is, is uh, on this dimension is it's, it's not enough to just say, okay, we're doing AI or we're doing machine learning. To, to, to the dependency of doing AI or machine learning really well is do you, have, do you actually have your data set in a form that you can make use of and make sense of? And a lot of companies are, are not actually thinking through their long-term technology strategy um, to, to say, is my information being managed, stored, organized in a way that I'll eventually get the kind of accretive benefits of AI uh, on top of this data? I think it's what people call data strategy, isn't it? You've yeah. got to get your data strategy right before you even really start rolling out. That's exactly right. And, and you have too many organizations that have fragmented data where you can't really, you don't have the, the sort of connection between different uh, objects and between different uh, data sets. For us, we are benefiting from the architecture decisions we made 13 years ago about being in the cloud. It means we have all of the data in one place. I think a lot of customers have to think through, uh, you know, in three or five or 10 years from now, are you going to be able to leverage, you know, uh, best-in-class AI or machine learning technology? Is your data in a format? Is it stored and managed in a manner that lets you take advantage of that? So that, that's a big one. Um, you know, I think when we think about our overall strategy, some of it now is becoming. Uh, one part technology as it relates to like the deep technology architecture and one part more the science of management and how that is changing. This sort of coupling of technology and, and business culture um, and are we setting our product up and are we setting our business up to be at the center of where we see the future of work. And that, that obviously is super important to us because our whole product is, is 100% driven by can we enable companies to work in a modern way which means we have to make sure we understand and when we see what that modern way of working is all about. And that, that's where we spend the majority of our time. Well, let's, let's talk about the future of work, because it's an interesting topic that actually has a number of different meanings. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff you see written about the future of work is just how much work is there going to be yeah, 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 yeah. 10 years down. But I'm guessing that's not really what you're talking about. You're talking about how will work get done within enterprise. Yeah, I think there's there, to that point, there's the future of jobs. Uh, so like the jobs themselves, what are the job categories? You know, who is going to do what? And then there's sort of, to us, when we say future of work, we think about, okay, what does work look like? How does work get done inside of an organization? Whether that's knowledge work or... Um, or industrial, you know, mechanical, uh, uh, you know, work, what, what, whatever that, that, that work tends to be. Uh, we think we're at this fundamental juncture where the world um, that, that, you know, the hundred plus years of industrial age management systems and practices um, are now really showing signs of not being able to scale for the digital age and not being able to translate well into the digital age. And I think that, you know, when you look at the, the, the hierarchies of organizations, when you look at the workflow patterns and processes of organizations, the waterfall methodology of product development and decision making, um, the sort of asynchronous flow of data throughout an organization, all of these things we think are going to be rendered 
completely um, uh, you know, useless in the digital age. And not, not just useless, but actually, in most cases, slowing down companies and how they operate. And so we, we, we think that, and interestingly, we think that the, um, a lot of the lessons to be learned are actually from software startups and the practices that smaller startups have had to learn in the software development practice of, of being agile, being able to iterate quickly, having a tremendous amount of data to make decisions from, uh, making sure that you have small teams that can move rapidly, yeah. be very, very close to the customer. Those practices that were built out for software and for the internet, I think translate now into every part of a business, whether that's HR, finance, product development, marketing. Um, and that's, the, the, I think, the profound change in, in, in business, which is taking these sort of agile, uh, team-based practices of building things and now translating and having that manifest into every part of an organization. It's moving from, you know, what I like to think of as agile with a capital A, yep. you know, actual hardcore agile software development methodology yep. to sort of agile with a small A or agility. Yes. And how do you take some of these practices and that whole ethos yep. and spread it out, you know, right across a company? Now, the question is, are large enterprises prepared, both culturally and technically, to be able to, to get there? And we spend a lot of time with, with, with large enterprise customers that are going through that journey and they're kind of saying, okay, it's not enough to just have modern technology. It's not like I can buy every cool new Silicon Valley software you know, startup product, but if my culture doesn't change, I actually can't get that much use from, from this technology. Conversely, you can have the world's best HR leader, the world's best CEO driving transformation, but if your technology stack means that people can't share data, they can't work in real time, they can't collaborate across the sort of traditional uh, divisions in their organization, then no amount of kind of quote unquote cultural change is actually gonna manifest in real productivity. And so the, the, the thing that we're seeing, which is a, a pretty interesting you know, trend, I don't know, I don't know if, if you're seeing this much, but, but this sort of the, the complementary transformation that's being driven from both the, the IT organization, the technology organization, as well as kind of HR and operations, these two things are feeding off of each other in a, in a pretty profound way um, that we think are, are going to uh, effectively collude to then ultimately you know, transform how companies will operate, which is you have to get to smaller teams that move much more rapidly, that, that have permission to, to, to fail but iterate constantly. They have to have data to get their jobs done. They have to be able to connect up to the rest of the business so people know what's going on. Um, it, that, that creates an environment of a lot more transparency, a lot more openness, a lot more inherent kind of accountability because you can see what's going on. And there's a lot of cultures that are not prepared for that. And, uh, and that's going to be, the, I think, the, 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 you know, one of the biggest tests of what companies in the Fortune 500 actually make it to the digital age or make it through the digital age and those that don't. How do you think about that in terms of Box's own operations? Because, you know, increasingly you are delivering at scale it has to be an incredibly reliable, secure yeah. service. Yeah. So in many ways, you know, you've got that foundation that you need to operate. It means we are totally reliable and secure. Yeah. But on the other hand, as you say, you're, you're trying to move fast. You're yeah. trying to iterate. You're trying to learn quickly and, you know, agile type practices. How do you marry those two things together, which is the challenge that a lot of big companies face? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is absolutely the, the kind of paradox of, I think, the digital age, which is, which is that uh, you have to move insanely quickly to stay competitive. At the same time, there's a lot of business processes that you have that we're not built for that kind of speed of iteration. If you're building a car, if you're building a jet engine, if you're, you know, uh, uh, you know, delivering a new, uh, a, a new treatment, um, uh, you know, to, uh, 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 you know, to some, um, you know, medical. Uh, yeah, issue. is it is it even desirable? 
right. for that to be, you know, I'd rather have my plane maybe. <laughs> I don't want it Less to fail fast. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I don't no, want it to fail that. fast. Yeah. You know. um, the, uh, I, I think that, uh, that this, is, this is definitely the, the, the challenge that a lot of organizations face. I think the key is to be very, very clear on which business processes, um, you know, can, can you afford to have this kind of level of iteration and, and agility and, and fail fast mentality. Like we don't have a we don't have a take risks approach in our accounting process. However, we still use a lot of agile practices when we are closing the books. We we effectively have Scrum you know team meetings that that are that are you know everybody's getting together, standing up, talking about what are the latest activities that we have to do. And at the failing fast is if something's off track, we're gonna we're gonna iterate and we're gonna know that instantly within a day or two of that happening, as opposed to the very typical process, which is I only find out three weeks later that somebody upstream from this process ended up doing something in, in a way that, that you know you, you had had the numbers wrong or created some problems. So so the idea of agility um, and the deal uh, the idea of Agile with a capital A is you, you, you get people much closer to the work and much closer to the ultimate customer. They are sharing information at a much fre more frequent basis. They're much more accountable and fully own the problem. And that, that, that transcends whether you're, you're you know, building the most trivial software or you know, doing uh, you know, jet engine design or, or you know, missile design. So just get a, get a little more specific, if you don't mind, yeah. about AI, yep. machine learning. There's a lot of hand-waving about it. But yep. like specifically, I know you started to build this in yep. to, to the product and the platform already. But what's it going to allow the product and the platform to do that it doesn't do today? Yeah, so we, we from an AI standpoint, uh, so it, it Box uh, stores uh, tens of billions of files, yep. hundreds of, of um, petabytes of data. And in all of that information, most of that information is relatively unstructured. So you take a, a Word document or an image or a video, you store it in Box, you share it with somebody, um, and but it's a relatively closed, contained object that, that we and you don't know much about um, at an abstract level. You, you you can look at your file, but but you don't really know all of the the essence of the data unless you no unless you don't you, you don't know what you don't know what's in there apart from the file name. Exactly. Usually could be anything. Exactly, and so you have to go and read it manually to know what what's going on inside of that piece of content, and so. The power of AI is that you can actually extract information and data from the, the information from the content itself. So if you take a uh, an image uh, that a, maybe a, a CPG company has of a new product, uh, you would be able to extract what are the objects in the, in that in that image. So what are all the product names? What SKU number is it? Um, and be able to take that information. If you were to be a um, a bank and you had a a, um, a customer record or a document or a contract. You'd be able to pull out all of the important data about that contract from that, that customer. So the, the power of AI is that you can begin to actually create structure and context from all of your information. And then the question is, what could you do with that? Can I automate business processes based on different rules of, okay, as certain images come into the system, I want to be able to route those images to the right person to approve them or review them. Um, I want to be able to automate a... Um, an insurance claims process by taking in all of the video and image from, from, an, from an insurance adjuster or from the consumer themselves and be able to automate that entire process. Uh, or um, uh, going as, as far into, um, into some of the more mission critical aspects of, I want to be able to actually understand how my data is being shared because there might be security events that are happening uh, where somebody's sharing a previously unknown to be confidential document, but with AI, I now know that there's confidential information inside that document. That person's sharing it with somebody that they're not supposed to be. I can now alert the security team or block that off. So it's things like optical character recognition, uh, image recognition, 
basically creating this sort of metadata layer that's auto-generated. Yep. And then as you say, what can you do with that? Can natural actually, language processing. Natural language processing. And then, you know, can you actually start to trigger automated business processes exactly. so that's, as, as the, the information moves through the system? That, that's exactly the, the vision. So take a whole bunch of, of workflows that either were being done in a, in a highly manual way or never being done at all because it would be cost prohibitive to do and begin to take the power of AI, uh, structure your information, and then begin to automate those processes. So, um, so again, that, that is a everything in, in healthcare, a, a healthcare uh, uh, delivery process to an insurance claims process to a digital asset management review process for a CPG company. Um, that's how we are approaching AI, but I think the, the, the really exciting thing is to start to think through all of the tasks that we spend time on inside of a workplace that you just know a computer could do better. Right? A computer can connect the dots between uh, our collective calendars way faster than we can. A computer can connect the dots between different information systems much faster than we can as we're searching for, for data. Why does it take us hours just to be able to pull up the latest business results when we're looking for our you know, Q2 business performance? Why can't I just ask a question to Siri and say, what was our revenue in Q2? And it spits out the answer. We know that, that, we know that computers can do these things. There just has never been elegant software to be able to connect it all together and actually deliver that from a user experience standpoint. And so uh, these are the things that we, we see as being incredibly exciting about where AI is going in the workplace and then really begin to just make sure that we can spend our time on the areas that, that, that humans are frankly way better at than computers and are actually the more fulfilling parts of our job, the creative tasks, the tasks where we're collaborating with other people, where we're actually creating new products and ideas, not just searching for information um, or doing things that, that computers are gonna be way better at. Yeah, and to go back to the, the question I asked around sort of big technology trends and moments being on the right side of history, you know, building all of these things into the product, I mean, these, these are your bets to be on the right side of history when it comes to AI, right? Correct, and, and we, we, feel like, uh, we, we feel like the way that, that we are going to manage, share and collaborate around our information in you know, three or five or 10 years from now is going to look unbelievably different than how it has in the past, and AI is gonna be at the center of all of that. Yeah, yeah. The other interesting thing looking at your AI strategy is, you know, you're working with Google, you're working with IBM, yeah. you're working with Amazon, you're, work, you're working with just about everybody, right? Yeah. And that raises a really interesting question about ecosystems, yeah. which again is something that you've, you've written about. Um, just talk to me a little bit about ecosystem strategy. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, this is, this is one of the areas that, uh, especially a lot of kind of incumbent companies, whether they're in software or, or not digital companies, um, are going through this evolution on, which is in a world of platforms, uh, fundamentally, you need to interoperate with other platforms. And, um, and uh, furthermore, in a world where uh, we are still relatively early on this journey of digitizing the globe and all of our businesses and, and how everything around the world works, uh, we're in a world of non-zero-sum kind of uh, gains and growth in so many different spaces, which means that, that actually you have a lot less time to compete and you have to start to actually collaborate to go in and, and go after these markets. And so a lot of incumbents are realizing that, that the competitors that they once had um, are now actually going to be their partners in this new era because there's simply no way for any one company to deliver enough innovation to solve all of the world's problems because of just how much growth and how much opportunity there is. So our approach to this is, is, is no different, which is to say uh, we are going to be the, hopefully, world's best product and company at managing and structuring and organizing and securing information. But 
it turns out that Google has more engin engineers than us. And it turns out that they're going to be spending billions of dollars every year on artificial intelligence. And IBM is going to be spending billions of dollars every single year on AI. And so why would we want to possibly be in a world where we are trying to compete with those, those players at their R&D budgets in a, in, a, in a space that they're going to do unbelievably well at instead of flip the model on its head and actually take all of the strength of their technologies and let our customers leverage those capabilities. So that's um, the, the, the architecture that we built. And the idea is uh, take advantage of all of the unbelievable innovation happening in AI and start to incorporate and include that in box so customers can turn on any of those services uh, for all of the data that they have in, inside their platform. And this is, um, you know, it's, it's, I think, not natural for a lot of organizations to be so open and, and so dependent on other companies and an ecosystem for their strategy. For us, we were kind of, again, as you mentioned earlier, born into this new way. We were kind of born in the right side of this era of ecosystems and interoperability and integrations. And the kinds of companies, again, whether they're digital or not digital, that think that they're going to somehow be able to build all of the technology themselves, they're going to control all of the architecture themselves. Uh, that is a, a fool's errand in the digital age because the amount of innovation that is happening from so many companies, if you can't take advantage of all of that and allow all that to become a tailwind for your strategy, then you're just not going to be able to compete with the companies that do actually take advantage of that. So, you know, you see a lot of companies these days that say, hey, you know, I really want to move to the cloud, but, but the best cloud competing provider might be one of my competitors. Well, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't leverage their technology. They're going to compete with you whether you like it or not. And, and I think maybe the, one of the most profound examples of this was Netflix, where they run primarily on Amazon Web Services. Amazon is one of their most significant competitors. But that didn't change the fact that architecturally, if Amazon is the better cloud computing provider, that has no bearing on what, how they're going to compete with Amazon on a completely different part of their business. And so that ability to, to, to sort of say, OK, we're going to compete in one area, we're going to complement each other and partner in another area is what we see as sort of the, the way of, of how organizations are going to have to operate in the digital age because of just how interdependent all of our technologies and how, how, how all of our products are uh, right now. Before we run out of time, I want to talk a little bit about business. I also read somewhere that every year you reread Clayton Christensen's <laughs> Innovator's Dilemma. Is that yeah. true? I, I don't know if I've, if I've kept up with it being every year. Um, so I, I, you know, for the, for the sake of accuracy, I would say it is not true. However, <laughs> more or less every couple of years, I, I reread it as a reminder about, again, how important these moments are when you're thinking through, is that competitor that's coming up behind you is that an actual disruptive threat, or is it something that, that you're going to be able? Is it actually more of a sustaining innovation that you're going to be able to adapt to? Uh, is there something that you're not responding to in the market because of your organization finds it unattractive to respond to that thing, um, or are we just are we just not actually moving fast enough? These are like fundamental decisions that teach you when are you at risk of being disrupted, but then conversely, are there areas where you can be more disruptive? To, to competition, and how do you take advantage of that? So that's why I think it's always important to, to be grounded in, again, the, the core of Innovator's Dilemma and why it matters. Yeah, I think it's a massively wise book. And it, it over the years, Clay and the book have taken a lot of stick, because yeah. people throw, away, throw around disruption as a buzzword. But actually, if you really read it, yeah. particularly these internal tensions, yep. that smart people in companies often fail at this. Yep. And it's not because they're stupid. I would say 98% of the yeah. time. And it's not because they're stupid. Nope. I didn't see it coming. It's all to do with incentives and processes and, and how you navigate this. That's exactly right. And, and, uh, and, and it's, I mean, it's funny because being a digitally born company, you think like, well, well, you would definitely know how to avoid this type of issue from you know, happening in your company. 
but I see it every day where you can just start to subtly see like how you know, one organization's or our entire business's incentive model is built around around something that is now going to you know let us uh, leave us in a position to be flanked in one particular area. And how do you mitigate that preemptively before maybe even the competition arrives from from you know in, in terms of attacking you in that area? But but it's all it's all people, it's all organization, it's all how are people incentivized? What are people gold on? And how do you make sure that you are hopefully you know the the, the best position to be in is where you're using Innovator's Dilemma as a as a, a, a as an offensive technique to be able to be disruptive in other markets, um, but at a minimum understanding it so deeply of of why are people not responding to disruptive threats in in, in their organization and how do you make sure that you uh, can avoid that from a defensive measure is also equally yeah. important. Well, thank you. This was a wonderful, hey, thank you. nerdy, pleasurable yeah, conversation. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we didn't lose too many people in your audience uh, after this one. I, I don't want the uh, podcast subscriber uh, count to drop after no, this. No, this, this is in our okay. sweet spot. This is great okay, stuff. Cool. So, Aaron, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Really good to be on. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.